0: Chapter Four of Afloat on the Ohio: An Historical Pilgrimage of a Thousand Miles in a Skiff, from Redstone to Cairo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Hoffman. Afloat on the Ohio by Reuben Gold Thwaites. Chapter Four: An Industrial Region, Steubenville. MINGO BOTTOM, IN A STEEL MILL, INDIAN CHARACTER MINGO JUNCTION, OHIO, WEDNESDAY, MAY 9th We had a cold night upon our island. Upon arising this morning, a heavy fog enveloped us, at first completely veiling the sun. Soon it became faintly visible, a great ball of burnished copper reflected in the dimpled flood which poured between us and the Ohio shore. WEEDS AND WILLOWS WERE SOPPING WET, AS WAS ALSO OUR WASH, AND THE BREAKFAST FIRE WAS A COMFORTABLE COMPANION, BUT BY THE TIME WE WERE OFF THE CLOUD HAD LIFTED AND THE SUN GUSHED OUT WITH THE PROMISE OF A WARM DAY. THROUGHOUT THE MORNING PILGRIM GLIDED THROUGH A THICKLY SETTLED DISTRICT, REMINDING US OF THE Mahongahela SEWER-PIPE AND VITRIFIED BRICK WORKS AND IRON AND STEEL PLANTS ABOUND ON THE NARROW BOTTOMS the factories and mills themselves generally wear a prosperous look, but the dependent towns vary in appearance, from clusters of shabby, down-at-the-heel cabins, to lines of neat and well-painted houses and shops. We visited the vitrified brickworks at New Cumberland, West Virginia, fifty-six miles, where the proprietor kindly explained his methods, and talked freely of his business. It was the old story, too close a competition for profit although the use of brick pavements is fast spreading fire clay available for the purpose is abundant on the banks of the ohio all the way from pittsburgh to kingston sixty miles a few miles below new cumberland on the ohio shore we inspected the tile works at freeman and admired the dexterity which the workmen had attained but what interested us most of all was the appalling havoc which these clay and iron industries are making with the once beautiful banks of the river. Each of them has a large daily output of debris, which is dumped unmercifully upon the water's edge in heaps from fifty to a hundred feet high. Sometimes for nearly a mile in length the natural bank is deep buried out of sight, and we have from our canoe naught but a dismal wall of rubbish, crowding upon the river to the uttermost limit of governmental allowance. Fifty years hence, if these enterprises multiply at the present ratio, and continue their present methods, the upper Ohio will roll between continuous banks of clay and iron offal, down to Wheeling and beyond. Before noon we had left behind us this industrial region, and were again in rustic surroundings. The wind had gone down, the atmosphere was oppressively warm the sun's reflection from the glassy stream came with almost scalding effect upon our faces. We had rigged an awning over some willow hoops, but it could not protect us from this reflection. For an hour or two, one may as well be honest, we fairly sweltered upon our pilgrimage, until at last a light breeze ruffled the water and brought blessed relief. The hills are not as high as hitherto, and are more broken, yet they have a certain majestic sweep, and for the most part are forest-mantled from base to summit. Between them the river winds with noble grace, continually giving us fresh vistas, often of surpassing loveliness. The bottoms are broader now, and frequently semicircular, with fine farms upon them, and prosperous villages nestled in generous groves. Many of the houses betoken age, or what passes for it in this relatively new country, being of the colonial pattern, with fan-shaped windows above the doors, Grecian pillars flanking the front porch, and wearing the air of comfortable respectability. Beautiful islands lend variety to the scene, some of them mere willowed towheads largely submerged in times of flood, while others are of a permanent character, often occupied by farms. We have with us a copy of Cummings' Western Pilot, Cincinnati, 1834 which is still a practicable guide for the Ohio, as the river's shorelines are not subject to so rapid changes as those of the Mississippi, but many of the islands in Cummings are not now to be found, having been swept away in floods, and we encounter few new ones. It is clear that the islands are not so numerous as 60 years ago. The present works of the United States Corps of Engineers tend to permanency in the status quo doubtless the government map of 1881 will remain an authoritative chart for half a century or more to come. W's enthusiasm for botany frequently takes us ashore. Landing at the foot of some eroded steep which, with ragged charm, rises sharply from the gravelly beach, we fasten Pilgrim's Painter to a stone and go scrambling over the hillside in search of flowers, bearing in mind the boy's constant plea to get only one of a kind and leave the rest for seed for other travellers may come this way and 'tis a sin indeed to exterminate a botanical rarity but we find no rarities today only solomon's seal trillium wild ginger crane'bill jack-in-the-pulpit wild columbine poison ivy is on every hand in these tangled woods with ferns of many varieties chiefly maidenhair walking-leaf and bladder the view from projecting rocks in these lofty places is ever inspiring the country spread out below us as in a relief map, the great glistening river winding through its hilly trough, a rumpled country for a few miles on either side, gradually trending into broad plains, checkered with fields on which farmsteads and rustic villages are the chessmen. At one o'clock we were at Steubenville, Ohio, sixty-seven miles, where the broad stoned wharf leads sharply up to the smart, well-built, substantial town of some sixteen thousand inhabitants. W. and I had some shopping to do there, while the doctor and the boy remained down at the inevitable wharf boat and gossiped with the philosophical agent who bemoaned the decadence of steamboat traffic in general and the rapidly falling stage of water in particular. Three miles below Steubenville is Mingo Junction, where we are the guests of a friend who is a superintendent of the iron and steel works here. The population of Mingo is twenty five hundred. From seven to twelve hundred are employed in the works, according to the exigencies of business. Ten percent of them are Hungarians and Slavonians. A larger proportion would be dangerous, our host aver, because of the tendency of these people to run the town, when sufficiently numerous to make it possible. The Slavs in the Iron Towns come to America for a few years, intent solely on saving every dollar within reach. They are willing to work for wages, which from the American standard seem low, but to them almost fabulous. Herd together in surprising promiscuity, maintain a low scale of clothing and diet, often to the ruin of health, and eventually return to Eastern Europe, where their savings constitute a little fortune upon which they can end their days in ease. This sort of competition is fast degrading legitimate American labor. Its regulation ought not to be thought impossible. A visit to a great steel-making plant in full operation is an event in a man's life. Particularly remarkable is the weird spectacle presented at night, with the furnaces fiercely gleaming, the fresh ingots smoking hot, the Bessemer converter blowing off, the great cranes moving about like things of life, bearing giant kettles of molten steel, and amidst it all, human life held so cheaply, Nearer to medieval notions of hell comes this fiery scene than anything imagined by Dante. The working life of one of these men is not over ten years, B. says. A decade of this intense heat, compared to which a breath of outdoor air in the close mill yard with the midsummer sun in the nineties seems chilly, wears a man out. Only fit for the boneyard, then, sir, was the laconic estimate of an intelligent boss whom I questioned on the subject. Wages run from ninety cents to five dollars a day, with far more at the former rate than the latter. A ninety-cent man working in a place so hot that were water from a hose turned upon him it would at once be resolved into scalding steam, deserves our sympathy. It is pleasing to find in our friend, the superintendent, a strong fellow-feeling for his men, and a desire to do all in his power to alleviate their condition. He has accomplished much more in improving the morale of the town, but deep-seated, inexorable economic conditions apparently beyond present control render negatory any attempts to better the financial condition of the underpaid majority. Mingo Junction Mingo Bottom, of old, was an interesting locality in frontier days. On this fertile river beach was long one of the strongest of the Mingo villages, During the last week of May, 1782, Crawford's little army rendezvoused here, en route to Sandusky, 150 miles distant, and intent on the destruction of the Wyandotte towns. But the Indians had not been surprised, and the army was driven back with slaughter, reaching Mingo the middle of June, bereft of its commander. Crawford, who was a warm friend of Washington, suffered almost unprecedented torture at the stake his fate sending a thrill of horror through all the western settlements. Let us not be too harsh in our judgment of these red Indians. At first, the white colonists from Europe were regarded by them as of supernatural origin, and hospitality, veneration, and confidence were displayed towards the newcomers. But the mortality of the Europeans was soon made painfully evident to them. WHEN THE EARLY SPANIARDS, AND AFTERWARDS THE ENGLISH, KIDNAPPED TRIBESMEN FOR sale INTO SLAVERY, OR FOR USE AS CAPTIVE GUIDES, AND EVEN MURDERED THEM ON SLIGHT PROVOCATION, DISTRUST AND HATRED NATURALLY SUCCEEDED TO THE SENTIMENT OF AWE. LIKE MANY SAVAGE RACES, LIKE THE EARLIER ROMANS, THE INDIAN LOOKED UPON THE MEMBER OF EVERY TRIBE WITH WHICH HE HAD NOT MADE A FORMAL PEACE AS A PUBLIC ENEMY. Hence he felt justified in wreaking his vengeance on the race, whenever he failed to find individual offenders. He was exceptionally cruel, his mode of warfare was skulking, he could not easily be reached in the forest fastnesses which he alone knew well, and his strokes fell heaviest on women and children, so that whites came to fear, and unspeakably to loathe, the savage, and often added greatly to the bitterness of the struggle by retaliation in kind. The white borderers themselves were frequently brutal, reckless, lawless, and under such condition clashing was inevitable. But worse agents of discord than the agricultural colonists were the itinerants who traveled through the woods visiting the tribes, exchanging goods for furs. These often cheated and robbed the Indian, taught him the use of intoxicants, bullied and browbeat him, appropriated his women and in general introduced serious demoralization into the native camps. The bulk of the whites doubtless intended to treat the Indian honorably, but the forest traders were beyond the pale of law, and news of the details of their transactions seldom reached the coast settlements. As a neighbor, the Indian was difficult to deal with, whether in the negotiation of treaties of amity or in the purchase of lands, having but a loose system of government, there was no really responsible head, and no compact was secure from the interference of malcontents who would not be bound by treaties made by the chiefs. The English felt that the red men were not putting the land to its full use, that much of the territory was growing up a waste, that they were best entitled to it who could make it the most productive. On the other hand, the earlier cessions of land were made under a total misconception, The Indians supposed that the newcomers would, after a few years of occupancy, pass on and leave the tract again to the natives. There was no compromise possible between races with precisely opposite views of property and land. The struggle was inevitable, civilization against savagery. No sentimental notions could prevent it. It was in the nature of things that the weaker must give way. The Indian was a formidable antagonist, and there were times when the result of the struggle seemed uncertain, but in the end he went to the wall. In judging the vanquished enemy of our civilization, let us not underestimate his intellect, or the many good qualities which were mingled with his savage vices, or fail to credit him with sublime courage and a tribal patriotism which no disaster could cool. End of chapter 4 Recording by Robert Hoffman.